Good evening. This evening, I'm going to talk about what is the major medical issue at the moment, uh, the new novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And this is very much an initial view early on in this epidemic. Epidemics can have very profound medical and social impacts, and COVID-19, caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2, definitely will. Epidemics occur actually more commonly than are popularly imagined, and most of them are localised. Some of them are severe enough to have international attention. Uh, and this is actually the third time uh, here as a Gresham professor uh, that I've talked in the middle of an epidemic. There was the Ebola, West African Ebola epidemic, another major one subsequently occurred in DRC. Uh, there was the Zika epidemic, which affected particularly pregnant women uh, and their offspring in Brazil. And now uh, the largest of them by some distance, the COVID-19 one. And this is certainly the most medically and socially important epidemic since HIV uh, and a lot more, a lot more uh, um, uh, indiscriminate than HIV, which uh, tended to be in particular groups or particular parts of the, uh, of the world. In the last century, only flu pandemics have had an impact anywhere near as significant as this pandemic has had already. And we are still, I'm afraid, very much in the early stages, and we'll know a lot more about this uh, in six months, and certainly a lot more in one and in two years. So undoubtedly, many of the things in this talk uh, will be superseded uh, over time by science, and some of them, although based on our, our current understanding of this virus, which emerged and was reported to the WHO uh, less than four months ago, will turn out to be wrong because science advances and our understanding, I'm glad to say, will improve. This talk will, will cover um, the epidemiology, including the mortality, the roots of transmission, and the force of transmission, the so-called R or r naught. It'll then cover the epidemiological, public health, societal countermeasures we're having to use because we don't have drugs or vaccines or other powerful tools. I'll briefly cover the clinical picture and then uh, talk about how the different potential medical countermeasures, including vaccines, drugs and diagnostics, uh, may be used uh, as we uh, combat this serious threat and then a brief section, I'll talk about the global picture. The early history of this epidemic, I think everybody knows, it has dominated the news for the last four months. At some point in late 2019, a new coronavirus uh, jumped species from animals into humans. This is the way that most epidemics and pandemics start, uh, probably in Hubei province in China, and probably horseshoe bats with the initial reservoir species. Uh, initial reports suggested pangolins might be involved, evidence still weak, and there's still some debate. In a sense, it doesn't really affect what happens now because it rapidly became a human-to-human -human, uh, infection. Uh, and it was able to do this because it's able to use a common receptor in particularly the upper and other respiratory tract, uh, the ACE2 uh, receptor, to infect uh, humans and be transmitted efficiently from person to person. Its initial spread in China was very rapid. And if you look at this map, 
Uh, this goes from December the 31st of last year until February the 11th of this year. And as you can see, the spread uh, was very fast uh, indeed. There was then a period in which there was significant transmission in China. There were spillover cases, cases that were imported from China uh, in many places around the world. Uh, but relatively little obvious transmission outside China, a few small outbreaks which appeared to be brought under control, but then it began to spread very widely. Uh, and the World Health Organization, WHO, declared this as a pandemic on March the 11th of this year. The current situation, uh, I've shown you the numbers here, has very significant transmission here in Europe and also in the USA but also significant transmission around the world. And it's continuing to spread and continuing to increase in numbers uh, in uh, almost every continent uh, other than Antarctica. Now, it's important when we think about epidemics that they address systematically. And I've taken this slide from a talk I gave two years ago at Gresham College when I laid out how you should think systematically about how to tackle a new epidemic or pandemic. And at that point, I said that there were five questions that you needed to have answers to to work out what the best response was. The first is to think about the mortality or the severity, often sometimes referred to as the virulence of the virus. How bad is it? How many people is it going to affect? The second, very important for how you tackle it, is the route and the duration of transmission from one person to another. The third is, do we have a treatment available that means we can use that treatment to uh, blunt the effects of this new infection? Uh, or, uh, even better, potentially, do we have a vaccine available? And the final question is, what is the force of transmission? And these are the questions you need to ask at the beginning of any epidemic. In the case of COVID-19, uh, unfortunately, Two of those things we know the answer to, and the answer is we do not have them. We do not have a specific treatment for this virus, and we do not have currently a vaccine available. So we therefore have to start with the other three questions, and I'm going to go through them one after another. Let us start with mortality. Uh, mortality, chance of dying, is a combination of um, the, the fatality and how many people are infected. Now, the infection fatality rate, the probability of dying if you actually have this virus, uh, is probably around or just below 1%. This may change as we understand how many other people have not uh, have been infected without symptoms. And if we compare that to other diseases, uh, it is actually a lot lower than many other diseases that have recently emerged. So, for example, Ebola, uh, when it first emerged, around 70% of those who were infected and had symptoms uh, died. HIV, uh, it was 100% of people who were infected uh, died uh, before we found medical countermeasures. Uh, smallpox, before it was eradicated, uh, the major form of smallpox, uh, mortality in most countries was around 30%. But then if we think about the H1N1 2009 flu pandemic, that had a much lower mortality, both in those diseases, but also than COVID-19. About 0.1% of people are estimated to have died of that. And then 
consider the other H1N1, the 1918 to 20 Spanish flu pandemic, that had a mortality rate of around 3%. But because so many people were infected, because the overall rate was quite low, the number of people who actually died of this was absolutely massive. And if we look at, on this slide, what it shows is that if you combine all the people, for example, in the USA, who died as a result of World War I, two uh, Korean and Vietnam wars, a smaller number of people died of all those wars combined than of this single uh, uh, infection, the 1918-19 uh, flu pandemic. Uh, so even a disease with a relatively low mortality, uh, if it affects very large numbers of people, can have a massive impact. Now, on this disease, in COVID-19, initial reports of the case fatality rate were very high. And that's quite common because when a new infection starts, people notice the people who are dying, notice the people who are very sick. But as, the, as people in China, doctors and scientists in China began to understand the disease uh, more, they started picking up much milder cases of the disease and therefore the actual uh, fatality rate was found to be a lot lower. And what you can see here is the assumed fatality rate over time uh, as things went on. And this wasn't because the disease changed, but because our understanding of the disease and particularly of milder cases of the disease improved. Now, in what I'll do now is just compare uh, this uh, infection, COVID-19, um, with six other coronaviruses which uh, affect humans. These are, there are many other coronaviruses in animals, but in humans there are six. And there are four which very commonly affect humans and have done uh, for uh, a very long period of time. Uh, I've uh, written them out here. I'm not going to give them their names. They're very dull combinations of letters and numbers. Um, but these coronaviruses are human coronaviruses and they cause up to 15% of ordinary colds, which people have uh, generally, generally in the winter uh, season. Very occasionally, these can cause more severe disease, pneumonia, in adults or children, uh, but that is rare. By contrast, there are two other coronaviruses that emerged uh, uh, over the last 20 years. Um, uh, MERS, I'll talk about both of these a bit later on, uh, which is a disease that jumped the species barrier uh, primarily from dromedaries. Uh, and this had a case fatality rate, still does have a case fatality rate of around 35%. So 35% of those who have a case of it, symptomatic case, uh, sadly die. Uh, and SARS, uh, which had a case fatality rate of somewhere between 11 and 15%. So the current infection, COVID-19, uh, is somewhere between these two, the four human uh, coronaviruses and these two which have recently jumped the species barrier. In understanding how this works, it's probably worth sort of thinking about this in terms of this two by two table. That what causes problems is if you have a, an infection which causes both significant mortality and has very high transmission. So if you think about the coronaviruses, you have the current human coronaviruses, they have high transmission, there's a lot of them around, but they have incredibly low mortality. And therefore, they have a relatively small impact uh, in terms of their burden of disease. At the other extreme are MERS 
and SARS. Both of these have a high fatality rate. If you catch them, you have a high chance of dying. But actually, the number of people infected was actually small in both cases uh, in the low thousands. And in both cases, at least to date, the number of people who've died from them, at least in terms of people who are recognized to have died from them, uh, is less than 1,000. COVID-19 has around a 1% mortality. Case fatality rate is a bit higher than that. That's people who've actually got symptoms. But it has very high transmissibility. And if you multiply a very small chance of dying by a very large number of people, you can still have a very big impact on society. Now, at an individual level, the chance of anybody watching this uh, dying of coronavirus are actually low. Over the whole epidemic, even if we have no vaccine, a high proportion of people will not get this. Of those who do get it, a significant proportion, the exact number is not yet clear, but uh, it's certainly a significant proportion, have no symptoms at all. They get it without even realizing it. Of those who do get symptoms, the great majority, probably around 80%, uh, depends on a uh, number of factors we'll go on to, have a mild or moderate disease, which is sufficient that they would want to go to bed and feel unwell in some cases. Some cases they can actually just carry on doing their ordinary activity, although we ask them not to, uh, but they don't actually need to go to the doctor or medical services and they make a full recovery. A minority have to go to hospital, but most of these actually, the principal thing they need is oxygen, and the great majority of those will go on just to survive. And then a minority have very severe disease, mainly ventilation, and of those, some sadly die with current treatment. But, important to stress, even in the most high-risk group, the majority of people who actually get this infection do not die. Now, the biggest risk factor for dying from this disease is undoubtedly age. And uh, doctors and scientists in China picked this up at an early stage. And what they found was that the case fatality rate, the probability of dying uh, if you actually have symptoms, was extremely low in children. And that's been replicated over time. And then steadily as you grow up, go up through the ages, certainly once you get above 60, uh, the mortality rate climbs quite significantly. Now, there's a difference between what's called the case fatality rate, your chances of dying if you have symptoms, and the infection rate fatality rate. And it's possible that the number of people without symptoms, asymptomatic uh, infection, are different in these different ages. We don't yet have those data uh, because we don't yet have a test that can say reliably, has someone previously been infected? But even for those who get symptoms, these are the case fatality rates. And even in the oldest group, people over 80, Restress, the majority of people who catch this will survive. When we look at data from the UK, exactly the same pattern is found, and uh, that's true in Italy and Spain and other countries which have had significant epidemics. That you see very, very few deaths uh, under the age of 50, uh, and then a quite steep climb uh, as you go on in time. But importantly, and I'll come back to this, Quite a big difference, and this is the second risk factor, between men and women, a higher mortality rate in men, quite significantly at every age group. Now, there's a complicated interaction with very many infections between age and mortality. In general, 
overall, on the right here, the, the expectation uh, is that people who are older have a higher risk of dying from any infection. Uh, there are a few exceptions to this. So this is the mortality rate by age at the top here. Are people, the biggest bar is people over the age of 85, below that 80 to 84 and so on, all the way down. And these are all infections in the UK leading to mortality. So it is the case that there are very many infections where if you're an older person, your chance of dying from any infection, it might be a pneumonia, urinary tract infection, other forms of sepsis, your chance of dying are significantly higher. But that isn't always the case. So for example, if you look at pandemic influenza, the 1918-19 pandemic influenza uh, period, uh, what you find is that uh, young children and the elderly, the two groups who normally die of flu and many other infections, were badly affected, but so also were young adults. But that has not been seen in this coronavirus epidemic, very heavily uh, shunted uh, towards people who are older citizens uh, or who have pre-existing health conditions, which I'll come on to. But it is, you can also look at this a slightly different way. In reality, other than children, where the mortality rates are very low under all circumstances, COVID, if you catch it, slightly increases your risk of mortality in every age group. But in younger people, the chance of dying is incredibly low in the first place, and COVID therefore only slightly increases it. But the main thing is that older people are more likely to be hospitalized. Of the people who are hospitalized, older people are more likely to get severe disease, which means they have to go to intensive care. Uh, and sadly, as I've said already, uh, older people are more likely to die. Now, just moving on to this point about the gender difference, I think this slide shows very clearly uh, in the UK the difference uh, between uh, men and women in terms of the severity of this disease. In red, are the bars which are uh, men, and on the, in green are the bars are, are, are in women. Uh, on the left, what you see is people who go to hospital. There is a very slight increase in hospitalization rate in men compared to women. But by the time you get to intensive care, you get to a situation where men are much more likely to have severe disease and therefore need intensive care, and then, sadly, to die. And this is very atypical. We do not know why this has happened. So here what we've got uh, is a uh, graph of ICU da data showing uh, the COVID cases uh, in the gray and blue bars, showing the big difference between men in gray and women in blue. Uh, and then underneath that, a line which shows the difference between men and women who are critically ill with other viral pneumonias. And as you can see, for those there is very little difference between men and women, but a very big difference with this disease. So this is a very significant uh, risk factor. And the third uh, group of risk factors are things which are what are called comorbidities, which are other diseases that people uh, have, uh, and these make them more susceptible. The ONS data, the Office for National Statistics here in the UK, show that, uh, around, that about 90% of people uh, who died for, from COVID had at least one other so-called comorbidity or other disease. These include cardiovascular disease, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, chronic lung disease, people who are immunosuppressed, either because of infections, because of uh, underlying disease or because of treatment, people with chronic kidney disease and liver disease, 
Uh, and also, uh, there's a significant link with people who are uh, more obese. There's also probably uh, some ethnic groups who are at greater risk. There's no doubt that there are higher rates of, in the UK, people are from uh, minority backgrounds who have significant severe disease. Some of that is due to comorbidities. Some of it may be to do with the job they do or socioeconomic factors, uh, but there may also be a factor uh, which is genetic and which is to do with their genetic heritage. So those are the risks for mortality. The next thing to consider is the route of transmission of COVID-19. And this is important because if you understand the route, that tells you what countermeasures you can use. And uh, again, in broad terms, infections have five routes which typically are used. A respiratory route, which includes COVID-19, SARS, MERS, and flu. There's a sexual route, and the last really major pandemic we had HIV was a sexual uh, route of transmission or a bloodborne route, secondary route. Touch is a route, and that's a significant uh, route, particularly for Ebola. Water or food is a route, uh, and that's a major route for, for example, cholera. And then there are insect uh, um, transmitted diseases such as Zika or malaria. The reason that knowing this is important is if, for example, it's a sexually transmitted infection, that takes you down one route in terms of how you combat it. If it's an insect-borne one, a vector-borne one, it takes you down a different one. Respiratory infections are, in fact, the most difficult to tackle. And then uh, it additionally has a secondary route, which is maybe quite an important one, which is touch, where people touch a contaminated area which someone has coughed or sneezed or talked over, uh, putting droplets onto it, and then touch their face. Now, outside healthcare settings, the main transmission mechanisms all are via the mouth or nose and possibly eyes. And there are, in outside healthcare settings, really two ways that people will catch this disease. The first of which is droplets. And these are produced, they're small, uh, but they're produced by people coughing, potentially sneezing, although that's much less of a feature of this infection. Uh, but you can also be talking, singing, even just breathing, and they go direct to people's mouth or nose to their mucous membranes. The second, uh, and they, are, they tend to be carried a shortish distance. WHO estimates most of them within a metre, uh, but it can go beyond that. In the UK, we say two metres is a much safer uh, distance, but they can be carried occasionally even beyond that. Uh, and then they drop uh, to the ground. They're, small, they're, they're large enough that they actually drop to the ground. But if you're within that uh, uh, zone, when people cough, uh, you can actually have them deposited on you. And then the second route is if someone has coughed on uh, or they have coughed into their hand and then touched a surface and then you touch it and then you touch your face, that's the key bit, and then you touch your face, touch your mouth, touch your nose, then you can transmit it from uh, an object, a door handle or something like that, onto your uh, face or nose and then catch it that way. And that gives, means that there are two things that we really have, everybody has to do one of which is to try and uh, make sure that if they sneeze or cough, that they catch it so that it doesn't, it doesn't go any further than it needs to. Uh, and the second 
and very important, uh, is to wash hands. Because if you touch it, and then you wash your hands before you go on to touch your face, then it will not be transmitted. Washing your, washing your hands with soap and water is highly effective. This is old-fashioned, but highly effective in preventing transmission. If you can't get soap and water, an alcohol gel will work. So, soap actually damages the lipid around the virus, so it is important you add soap just to uh, rinsing your hands under a tap. And this is a relatively easy uh, virus to uh, get off surfaces. Uh, most normal detergents and soap uh, will actually kill the virus, so cleaning in the ordinary way will usually get rid of it. If it is on a surface, because someone's coughed on it or touched it having coughed into their hand, uh, there is a relatively rapid drop-off in the viability of this virus. It does depend a bit on the temperature, on the humidity, and importantly on the surface, but even under ideal circumstances for this virus, it's unlikely to be viable beyond about 72 hours. And what you have here at the bottom are some data that compare the survival of the virus on different uh, materials, showing that, for example, on copper, um, the actual survival is really a matter of a small number of hours. Uh, on softer things like cardboard, uh, it survives for less time than if it's on something like stainless steel or plastics. But even under these, the great majority of it will be gone within 48 hours, uh, and it's very unlikely to be viable uh, beyond 72 hours. So those are the roots of transmission. It's also important to work out what the duration of transmission is. How long is someone infectious for uh, after they become infected themselves? And for some infections, and we actually initially thought this might be true for this infection, people are only infectious at the time after the time they've had symptoms. But actually increasingly, evidence has come out that people are infectious for probably two or maybe even three days prior to getting symptoms. And then once people get symptoms, they're probably significantly infectious for a few days, and then it drops off quite rapidly to about seven days, although a few people may be infectious uh, a bit beyond that. We also know that a significant proportion of people get this virus without symptoms. What we don't know is how much that contributes to the, uh, the, uh, the epidemic. Now, this is important because if it was the case, as it is with some infections, that only people with symptoms can transmit, then if you could isolate everybody who's got symptoms, then the epidemic would uh, be significantly reduced. But in this uh, infection, it does look as if people are uh, infectious before they get symptoms, and they may be infectious even if they don't get any symptoms at all. Now, I'm thinking how a uh, pandemic or an epidemic coming from a respiratory virus might go, go. It's important to think about previous examples where we've had new or emerging respiratory viruses. And I'm going to start off with the two recent uh, coronaviruses uh, and then move on to uh, the most classic of the respiratory viruses in terms of epidemics, which is influenza. Uh, the first of these, um, the, the more uh, recent of these, uh, is MERS-CoV. This is uh, got as its reservoir dromedaries, um, and uh, it is transmitted, at least at this stage, dromedary, dromedary to human, um, uh, mainly in the Arabian Peninsula, and then there is some human-to-human -human spread. As I said earlier, if you actually catch this infection, it's difficult to catch, but if you do catch it, the chances of dying are high. About a third of people uh, with MERS uh, and symptoms will die. And in this case, what has happened over time 
uh, is that there have been spikes of transmission of this. There were some significant uh, outbreaks, including in 2015, uh, a significant outbreak uh, in South Korea, uh, where it was transmitted person to person, particularly in healthcare settings. Uh, and then brought under control, but it's never taken off as a major pandemic around the world. The second one to consider is SARS. SARS is actually a coronavirus that has got some similarities as a virus to uh, the current COVID-19 coronavirus. Uh, in 20, uh, 2002 to three, uh, it emerged from bats also in China um, it spread very widely in China and then spread to a variety of other areas around the world. There were significant outbreaks, for example, in Taiwan, uh, in Canada, uh, and in Singapore. And then around the world, there were what's called spillover cases, where people would fly in with this infection, but then they'd be identified early, uh, isolated, and it didn't get transmitted on. And there were, for example, four cases in the UK. This is a serious disease. Um, it caused uh, between 11 and 15% of people who caught it uh, sadly died. Uh, and transmission of this was almost exclusively or probably even exclusively from people who had symptoms. The, there was a very concerted effort to find all the people who had symptoms of this based in particular on their geographical travel or where it was. Uh, they were isolated, classical public health um, and uh, this uh, infection went away in the early stages. It was much less transmissible, we now uh, can see, uh, than the current coronavirus. And so after uh, this initial 2002-03 epidemic, um, uh, and just under 10,000 cases of people getting it, um, uh, this disease went away and has never re-emerged since that time. Now, this is an important one to look at. And when this uh, current coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the actual virus itself, first emerged, uh, many people thought, well, maybe this is going to behave like SARS. There will be a significant outbreak in its initial country of origin, China. Some spillover cases will be able to contain it. Uh, it'll be controlled in its country uh, of origin. Um, and this will just disappear. But obviously, that has not happened uh, in the case of COVID-19. The other examples are, that are relevant here are probably the influenza pandemics. And of these, the most important is the 1918-19 influenza pandemic, the worst on record. Uh, estimates vary, but somewhere between 17 and 100 million deaths. Three waves occurred over two years, and the second wave was the one that killed the majority of people. And to give you some idea about how fast this spread, this is the USA at a time when travel was much less uh, connected than it is now. The dark colors are where it was before September the 14th, and the light colors are where it was after October the 5th. This moved incredibly fast. And if you look at mortality rates in the US uh, in October of that year, you can see an, a, a really massive spike over the baseline uh, rate of mortality. So this moved at phenomenal speed and killed very large numbers of people. Two other significant uh, pandemics of influenza occurred in the last century. In 1957, uh, H2N2, uh, one called the Asian flu, uh, had uh, around about 0.3% mortality, so quite a lot less than the uh, 1918 uh, H1N1. 
uh, kills uh, in, uh, uh, around 1.1 million people uh, in the world. Um, and in the US, where there were good data, uh, around 116,000 uh, deaths occurred as a result of this. And then um, 11 years later, um, uh, a, another uh, flu pandemic, uh, which again killed around a million people worldwide, had a significant mortality in the USA, around 100,000 people, uh, but much lower in most other countries, including the UK. Occurred in two waves. Uh, again, the second wave killed more than the first. And uh, here, what you can see uh, uh, is the kind of um, Nightingale Hospital equivalent uh, from that era. And then the last flu pandemic, which most people will probably remember, although it was relatively mild, was an, another H1N1 in 2009. This, uh, again, moved very fast. So what you can see here on the left, this emerged in Mexico originally, uh, spread through the USA initially and then spread around the world. Uh, and as you can see on the top left, we have April, 9th of April, and the bottom right, how fast, far it has spread by the 13th of July. Moved incredibly quickly, but fortunately, this had a very low mortality. So very high transmission, low mortality, and therefore probably uh, uh, the, although um, several millions of cases, probably uh, between 40 and 90 million cases were actually infected, the number of deaths around the world and in individual countries was very low. So in that pandemic, uh, there were only about 460 deaths in the UK. So this is a range of different uh, ways in which respiratory uh, pandemics uh, and respiratory epidemics with that coronaviruses can uh, behave. How they are going to uh, impact on people will be a combination, as I said, of their chance, their mortality and how far and fast they spread. And this brings us on to the force of transmission, the R naught. This is a key concept, probably the key concept in understanding both uh, how epidemics propagate and also um, how you have to control them. So the force of transmission is where uh, is the number of people the average person with an infection goes on to infect. And the R naught is what happens if you put this into a population who have no immunity. By definition, to get an epidemic, you've got to have an R naught of greater than one. So the average person has got to pass it on to more, to, uh, more than one other person. If you can get the R below one, if let's say you've got 100 people infected and they infect, let's say the R is 0.5, 50 people who then infect 25 people, uh, this epidemic is going down. But if it's anything above one, this is actually going to increase. For COVID, uh, the R is somewhere in the UK uh, when it first arrived in the UK with an R around three, maybe slightly lower, but in, in that order of magnitude. So on average, one person was giving it to maybe roughly three people who give it uh, to nine people and so on. And just to put this in context, uh, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa um, had an R of somewhere between 1.2 and 2.5. It spread really quite fast uh, in West Africa. Uh, the 1918 uh, flu pandemic uh, probably had an R slightly lower, in fact, than the one we've got at the moment. In the expansion phase of HIV, uh, the R was somewhere in the two to five range, depending on which country uh, we're talking about. 
It can, of course, go a lot higher than this. So if you think about measles, a very highly infectious disease, that can have an R of greater than 10. Um, and uh, malaria in parts of Africa has an R of greater than 100. But for most epidemics, uh, the kind of R we're talking about for this disease uh, is quite sufficient to lead to a significant onward transmission and propagation. And if R is above one, even by a small amount, you'll go on to get exponential growth in this, uh, in this epidemic. It may be slower if the R is low, and if it's high, it'll go faster. It depends on a number of things, including how, how, the fa how fast the generation time is. Um, but in the case of COVID, it was fast. And when it came to the UK, the initial doubling times, depending where you were, were between three and five days. So every three days, in, in for example, London, every three days, the number of people who actually had this disease was doubling. And this means that without interventions, you get from very low numbers to very high numbers extraordinarily fast because it goes up an exponential curve. So you got two and four and eight, and initially they seem small numbers, but when you're turning from 2,000 uh, to 4,000 to 8,000 uh, over a six-day period, for example, uh, you're clearly then starting to move into very, very large numbers extremely quickly. And the result of that, if you've got a disease which has got significant mortality and significant severe disease, as COVID-19 has, is in addition to large numbers of people being infected and a significant proportion of those potentially sadly dying, you also get the health service likely to be overwhelmed uh, extremely quickly. So what can you then do? So in the absence of a vaccine or an effective drug, which is clearly the way we want to get out of this, and I'll come on to that in the uh, next section, the third section of this talk, uh, we then had to move on to relying on social and public health measures to try to control this very rapidly spreading uh, virus with a significant mortality, uh, which was doubling every three days. And the concept, which I think most people are now very aware of, is the idea of flattening the curve. Because what you have is you have an exponential curve. If the R0 is uncontrolled, unmitigated, uh, this goes up very sharply, very quickly. So you get extremely large numbers in a very short time. Health service becomes overwhelmed. And if you can slow this down, pull the R right down, you can both slow it down so you get much lower peak. Uh, and also, if you can get the R below one, uh, the number of cases starts to fall. Simultaneously with that, you then look at the healthcare system and you try and increase the capacity of the healthcare system to cope. And in most countries that have had significant COVID epidemics, that is what we've done. We've done social measures to flatten the curve, to pull down the force of transmission and pull the R uh, below one. Uh, and then we've raised the bar in terms of expanding the capacity. And my colleagues in the NHS in the UK have done an absolutely heroic job uh, in doing that over the last uh, six weeks. The third thing that this achieves, however, uh, is that if you have an epidemic that runs without any check, more people get infected. You get what's called overshoot, uh, and more people get infected than actually would do, you would do if you can flatten the curve right down. So what you're trying to do is three things. Pull the curve down below the ability of the healthcare system to cope. Stop this overshoot where more people get infected than uh, you can avoid uh, and increase the capacity of the NHS. And those are the 
uh, or other healthcare systems. And those are the three things we've been doing uh, this year. And if you don't have a vaccine or drugs, there are broadly four things you can do. The first of which is at an individual level to reduce the chances of infection. These are the respiratory hygiene things and hand washing, as we've talked about before. Really uh, effective uh, interventions, in fact, at an individual level. The second thing, classical public health, is you isolate the cases. If someone's got symptoms, you say stay at home. Because this is something which can infect people uh, early um, uh, and with minimal symptoms, uh, we also say their close household contacts also have to stay at home over the, uh, over the period uh, of potential infectivity. And uh, if possible, you also want to isolate all their contacts, what's called contact tracing and isolation. Uh, so isolate cases, isolate households, and ideally isolate their contacts. There are a variety of ways this can be done and different countries have taken slightly different approaches to this. But the idea of isolating cases so they don't go on to infect uh, is common to everybody's response. The third thing, and this is where the concept of social distancing comes in, is the idea of reducing links between individuals and above all, between households. So if individual household members normally wouldn't meet, but their children meet in school or they meet at the school gate or they meet at work or they meet uh, in public transport or in shops, these are in situations where one household can pass on an infection to another household. And the social distancing measures are a way of reducing the links between these households. And this is, helps to pull the R down for any uh, infection, particularly a respiratory one, uh, where this is the most relevant uh, thing we can, we can use. And finally, in, inf in an infection like COVID, where we know which group of people are the most likely to die of this disease, you try and make sure that that group, older people, people with comorbidities, are particularly unlikely to come into contact with infection. Uh, and you ask them to take particular caution not to come into contact with people unnecessarily, and in the most severe cases, to do what we've called shielding, which is absolutely minimise their contact with anyone else to reduce the chance that they are one of the people who gets infected because they could go on to have severe disease uh, and uh, to die. One of the troubles with COVID-19 is because it had this significant force of transmission, one measure or even two or three measures were not sufficient to pull the R, the force of transmission, below one and therefore flatten the curve and eventually get it to uh, reduce, get the number of deaths uh, to start to reduce. And various modelling uh, exercises were done here in the UK, done in other countries as well. And what they showed was you had to use a combination, quite a large combination, of different measures to have enough force to push the R down by isolating as many cases as possible and breaking the contacts between households by closing schools, closing workplaces, uh, reducing all unnecessary uh, contact between people who are in different households. Now that has worked, it's worked in, in every country that has used it. Uh, and what you are, are seeing um, in the UK, for example, these are hospital death rates, the curve is slightly different uh, in social care settings. But what we are now seeing is that the number of deaths, the number of cases, the number of intensive care cases has now started to reduce. The R, the force of transmission, has gone down. 
I should put a caution on this. These data are hospital COVID proven cases. And we know that there will be people outside that setting who will have died in care homes at home. And we also know some people may have had COVID who are not recognised as having COVID. So it is important when we start looking at uh, eventually at the number of people who've uh, died of, of this, that we don't just look at people who, are, who have been identified as having COVID, but we also look at the all-cause age-adjusted mortality, looking at actually how many people died in total. This is the key metric. But it is clear by all the metrics under all, in almost all the settings in the UK, in most European countries, uh, previously in China, for example, uh, that the curve has reduced as a result of these aggressive social distancing measures uh, and isolation by a variety of different means. Unfortunately, however, uh, we've got a situation where the R could very easily go back above one. And since we are, uh, we are sure that a significant proportion of the population and probably the great majority uh, have no immunity to this disease. If that happened, uh, the, if R went back above one, we would certainly get a second wave. And if it went back to exponential growth for any length of time, the NHS or any other health service would go back to being threatened and potentially overwhelmed. And so we have to be aware of the fact that we're gonna have to keep in place measures to keep R below one for the foreseeable future until we get effective medical countermeasures such as a vaccine uh, or clear demonstration that large numbers of people are infected uh, asymptomatically without any symptoms. Although we tend to think about the direct causes of mortality from this disease, there are also four ways this epidemic will cause excess mortality and morbidity, morbidity being uh, people who get severely ill uh, but maybe not to the point of dying. There are the direct causes of death from the coronavirus, assuming that the health service is functioning optimally. So these are people who die uh, of the disease despite the fact the health service is working fine uh, because this is a very dangerous disease, particularly for older people or people with coexisting health conditions. The second cause of death, which has occurred in some areas, um, hasn't occurred uh, to date in the UK, I'm glad to say, is indirect deaths because the health service becomes overwhelmed and therefore unable both to treat people with COVID-19 and also potentially overwhelmed and unable to treat other things. And a lot of the activities that countries around the world, in Europe, in the US, in China, elsewhere, have done, have been to make sure that health services are not overwhelmed and therefore this cause of indirect deaths does not occur. The third cause of mortality or morbidity is indirect deaths, either because the health service has had to cancel things in the UK to make space for uh, the surge of people who had COVID coming into the NHS. We had to cancel a lot of or postpone a lot of non-urgent but important things, elective surgery, for example, screening, or potentially because people are afraid to come into hospital or don't want to overwhelm the system and stay at home despite the fact that they have heart attacks, strokes, or other severe causes of mortality, potentially. And it is very important, and we stress this, throughout this whole epidemic in the UK to date, the NHS has always had capacity for emergencies, and we really, really want to stress to people that if they have a medical emergency uh, that is life-threatening or serious, uh, then they still should go to use the NHS, absolutely should. 
And then the final uh, cause uh, of mortality, and this is a much longer term one, um, the interventions that uh, we have had to put in place for this have a very big social and economic uh, impact. Uh, and this is a complex area. There's a very, very complex interaction between, in the short term, between e uh, economic uh, and uh, uh, health outcomes. But in the long term, if you increase deprivation for the people who are already uh, more socioeconomically deprived, we know that there is a very strong link to Ill, Ill health. There's a very clear correlation in every country in the world between deprivation or being relatively socioeconomically deprived uh, and having long-term health problems. So these are all the ways in which an epidemic, uh, this epidemic can have an impact. And that's important when we're thinking about the next phase in every country as it comes out of a lockdown. Because every country has now got an extremely difficult balancing act. And we all need to be honest about the fact that there are no easy solutions here. There are certain things which are absolutely clear. The first of which is if we allow the R naught or the R to go above one for any sustained period, it will lead back to exponential growth again and the risk that many people will get the infection and the health service will be overwhelmed. But at the other end of the spectrum, COVID-19 is a very long way from finished and eradication is technically impossible for this disease. There's also the complication that just narrowly from a health perspective, the optimal answer about how you uh, start to remove some of the things involved in lockdowns and uh, other social distancing may have different impacts uh, depending on whether you're talking about the direct deaths for COVID and indirect deaths through some of the other mechanisms, through uh, other thing, impacts on the health service or the long-term socioeconomic effects on individuals. And there are, in addition to health impacts, there are, of course, important social and economic considerations. So this is going to be a very difficult decision for every society, how they balance the relative uh, impacts of different things, but all societies, I think, would agree that we need to make sure that the R does not go back above one, because if not, we will go back to a second wave. And the point I made with the flu pandemics is it is entirely plausible for a second wave to actually be more severe than the first if it is not mitigated. And I, I, one other slightly gloomy uh, point uh, before I move on to clinical uh, things. It's not just in Game of Thrones that winter is always coming. It is also true in any, every health service. You have to think about uh, winter um, and there are several ways in which this may have an effect on this virus. So despite the fact we're in early spring now, I and my colleagues are having to think about this at this point. There may be a seasonal element to this. We don't know. It's too early with this virus. But it may be that there's a seasonal element. And if so, for most respiratory viruses, they are more likely to be transmitted. There's a higher likelihood of transmission in the winter. Secondly, in, in a period when other infectious diseases that look very like COVID are there, a syndromic approach where you say, if you've got these symptoms, stay at home, becomes much less easy uh, because people will have potentially repeated infections with things that aren't, aren't COVID but look like COVID. At this point in, of the year, if someone's got something that looks like COVID, there's a high chance it is COVID. In, in the winter, that is less true. Third thing is that the NHS and all other health services around the world are more under pressure 
during this period through a combination of different reasons. It's just it's an observable fact everywhere. On the other side of the equation, the fact that there will have to be some social distancing is likely actually slightly to reduce or even significantly to reduce flu and other respiratory tract infections. Nevertheless, the winter is always worse than the summer, spring and autumn uh, for health services. So we need to think about this at this point and we need to think about this in terms of how we come out for the next phase. Now a short section on the clinical aspects of COVID. The symptoms of mild and early COVID uh, are often very nonspecific. The majority of people who have symptoms, and as I said, some people don't have any symptoms at all, have a fever or cough. And that's the reason why in the UK we say, if you have a fever or cough, you should stay at home. Even once uh, before we started to have the other social distancing measures, and we will, this will continue, need to continue to be the case, and also stay at home with your household uh, if you're living with others. Additionally, there can be muscle aches, headaches, shortness of breath, chills, or sore throat, all things which are common for many other respiratory infections. Something which seems to be uh, particularly uh, prominent in this infection, we're still looking at this, but I think it looks likely this is uh, true, um, is that there seems to be an association with losing taste or, or smell. Now, for most people who have mild or early COVID, they don't actually need to seek medical advice. They'll have a mild or moderate disease uh, and they only need to call for help if they deteriorate. Most of them will recover uh, either after a mild, very mild illness or maybe after two or three days in bed with a flu-like, as we would normally call it, symptoms, and then people improve. But they must, and we really must stress this, self-isolate immediately. And then most people will recover within about seven days they may have a persistent cough, which goes on for quite a lot longer than that, it can be a bit annoying uh, for some weeks. But other than that, people with mild disease tend to make a relatively quick and full recovery. But a minority fail to settle and they're still uh, unwell at a week and maybe starting to deteriorate. People can deteriorate before that, but it tends to be after a bit of a delay. Uh, and they may go on to get respiratory failure requiring in most cases oxygen, not in absolutely all of them, uh, and in more severe cases, they can have other organ failure. And it does look as if this deterioration, which occurs maybe a week after the first symptoms, is actually an immunological reaction. So it's not necessarily directly from the virus, but it's an immune response to the virus. And that's important for possible treatment. And then, some of those will go on to have severe or critical disease requiring intensive care or at least high dependency levels of care. They can have a very rapid deterioration. There's still, this is a very early period of understanding of this disease. We're still evolving just on the basis of clinical uh, uh, studies and people looking and working out what works, how best to manage this. Um, the mortality rates are probably in the UK and most other countries beginning to come down as doctors get better at managing this just from learning uh, the normal way in which doctors learn how to manage a new disease. There's quite a lot of debate about things like mechanical ventilation, who are the right people to have mechanical ventilation. One thing that's very striking from this disease is it seems to have a significant risk, increased risk of blood clots like lung pulmonary emboli in the lungs uh, or indeed strokes and other uh, kinds of clotting. 
Uh, and uh, initially we thought uh, the majority of the severe disease uh, would be just in the lungs, but a significant number of people uh, who have ventilation uh, needs also, for example, have kidney problems and need renal support. So this can be really a very severe disease and at the extreme end, uh, people can be very sick uh, indeed. And as we say, there is a significant mortality rate, albeit a low, a low one. So now I'm going to move on to the, um, the bit about the, the next section of my talk, uh, which is asking the question, will technology dig us out of the hole? Currently, we're having to use relatively crude social interventions because we do not have a technological solution to this virus. And my uh, optimistic answer, and I'm reasonably confident about this, is undoubtedly we will eventually. Infectious diseases are something which uh, humans have, uh, have proved incredibly effective at combating. If you'd gone back uh, to the period when this college was founded, medicine was very heavily dominated by infectious diseases, gradually improved over time. A hundred years ago, infectious diseases were still killing more people than cancer and were pretty similar to, not quite at the same rates as, cardiovascular disease. Over the 50 years that followed that, infectious diseases have really gone down to very low levels. And that's because through a combination of public health measures and uh, interventions, medical interventions, we have got incredibly effective at preventing and treating infections. But with a new infection, it can take some time. With HIV, for example, it took several years before we started to have the highly effective drugs which now control it and the majority of people who catch it. With Ebola, it took a while to get vaccines and more recently drugs, uh, and the same uh, is likely to be true here. So the question is, what medical interventions will we have and how quickly? And these include better diagnostics, which help uh, both with medical management and also public health interventions, vaccines, uh, and are often overlooked, but very important drugs. Start off with what we currently have. We already have from an early on, because uh, scientists from China and elsewhere released very early the genome of this virus, it allowed people to develop uh, PCR tests for this virus very early on. Um, they can be done, uh, and they, these tests are for current viral infection. So if someone's got an infection, uh, generally with symptoms, occasionally if they don't have symptoms, you can do a throat or, or nasal swab uh, and this will, uh, you can then uh, test the virus directly. Tests are very good already and steadily actually improving, but they're already extremely accurate. The difficult questions with the current tests are who to test uh, and at what stage. Do you, for example, what, what kind of people would you test who don't have any symptoms? So the, the, the questions in science at this point are primarily around the who to test. And we definitely do need faster tests because we do, we do have a problem in every country, we certainly do in the UK, with some transmission on in a hospital setting. And being in a situation you can screen people as they come into a hospital and uh, almost immediately say, well, you've got the virus and they need to be isolated. This would help us significantly in terms of reducing onward transmission in hospitals and other institutions. So uh, we need good strategies for the tests uh, and we need faster tests, but we already have them uh, for this virus, which given the time since this virus emerged, I think is uh, extremely impressive uh, on the science front. The second form of test that we need, and we've already got early ones, but these will improve, uh, is serology tests or antibody tests. 
And serology tests aren't testing for the disease now. What they're testing for is the fact that someone has had disease in the past. And this is important for several reasons, but the most important at this point in time is it will tell us what we do not currently know, what proportion of people have been infected, but without having any symptoms at all. Um, when you have an infection, you tend to use several different antibodies are produced. The first ones at the bottom here are this one called IgM. Tests for this are usually not very uh, accurate, uh, and that's true uh, for this infection as well, at this, least at this point in time. But later on, you develop other antibodies, particularly uh, something called IgG, uh, and this tends to give much more accurate tests, uh, but they tend to only become accurate uh, three or four weeks after someone has been infected. Currently, the tests that we have for this are probably about 70, maybe 80% sensitive. Um, and they're not really adequate, I think, for individual case management, but they are already adequate to give us a feel for what proportion of people have been infected without having symptoms and what proportion of the population currently have antibodies. And studies like this are going on around the world at the moment, and we'll have the results of those very shortly. But we don't currently know if you have antibodies, does that show you cannot get this infection again? And there are some reports now of people who appear to have either continued to have the virus for a prolonged period or possibly been reinfected, having recently been infected. So we don't know how long uh, people remain immune to this uh, infection. And this is a critical question, uh, both for the epidemiology of this, this infection and also potentially for vaccines. So moving on to vaccines themselves, um, vaccine strategies in epidemics come in various different forms. Uh, I'm gonna divide them broadly into epidemic modifying vaccine strategies uh, and uh, um, disease modifying vaccine strategies. An epidemic modifying vaccine strategy, the one that most people think of, is where you have a vaccine that is highly effective at preventing infection uh, and which you can give uh, to the whole population. And what that means is that everybody who's vaccinated is protected against the infection. And then if there are a few people who have not been vaccinated, they're surrounded by people who have been vaccinated or have had infection and are immune, and therefore they're very likely to come into contact uh, directly or indirectly with someone who can pass on the infection. They're protected by this, uh, and there is this population immunity which leads to the epidemic going away. This, incidentally, is the only situation where you would ever uh, aim for herd immunity, population immunity, as a policy aim. You also can do epidemic-modifying vaccine, use vaccines to... Uh, target very high transmitting people, uh, fairly unlikely to be useful in this particular uh, infection where many people who um, transmit effectively have few risk factors and often few symptoms. And there's a strategy which won't work, in my view, for this particular infection called ring vaccination, but is effective, for example, in Ebola, was effective in smallpox, where you find someone with a disease and you vaccinate around them. But these are unlikely relevant for COVID-19. The idea, though, of a whole population vaccine strategy is certainly very uh, relevant, and we're uh, clearly, in the UK and every other country, trying to find vaccines which can do this. 
But even if you can't find a vaccine which actually is sufficiently effective and sufficiently safe, you can give it to the whole population, you may get a vaccine which is a disease-modifying vaccine. It may be a less good vaccine, partially effective, or it may have enough side effects you wouldn't want to give it to everybody, but you would give it to people who are at high risk. And this could have a very important role, particularly if it reduces the, the, the severity of disease, uh, even if it can't stop infection. So some vaccines, you can give someone the vaccine, it won't necessarily stop them getting infected, but it can reduce the risks of them getting complications. An example, most, most people listening to this will probably at some point, certainly in the UK, have had a BCG vaccination, or at least a significant proportion will have had a BCG vaccination. Uh, this uh, may not uh, stop them from getting infected with TB, but it's very likely to stop them, for example, getting a TB meningitis. So some vaccines can protect against disease uh, without um, being fully uh, effective in terms of stopping infection. Uh, this could be therefore very useful for high-risk groups. So we know who the people are who are at high risk of getting COVID. We could vaccinate all of them. We could vaccinate, for example, healthcare workers, uh, and that would significantly reduce the chance that people die of this infection, even if the infection was still circulating in the population. Clearly less of, less of a satisfactory solution than a whole population one, but it may be what we would need to use. Drug treatments, however, can also be highly effective. And just going back to the example of HIV, uh, we've managed uh, most of the way in which we've dealt with the HIV pandemic is by using drugs rather than by using a vaccine. A vaccine's been looked for for a long time. We haven't yet got an effective one. We have got highly effective drugs, and this is the way in which we deal with this and indeed many, for example, bacterial uh, infections. And for this infection, COVID, uh, we could uh, use them in several different ways, but the treatment, uh, the, the key ones are treatment and then possibly for prophylaxis, which I'll come on to. And if we're talking about treatment, there are two things we could try to do. We could, a treatment is when someone's got symptoms and you give them a drug to prevent them uh, becoming severely ill or dying. And you can give them early with mild cases to prevent people who've got mild disease going on to get severe disease. Or we can get people who are becoming severe and give them treatment to stop them going on to intensive care for prolonged periods or dying. And at this point in time, there are probably three groups of drugs that we're looking at. And the network on the right is showing just some of the multiple clinical trials that are already going on with this new infection as we try to find out what, in, what uh, drugs can help to stop people dying from this infection, even if they become infected. The first group, the most obvious in a sense, are antivirals, drugs which actually suppress uh, or stop the virus uh, in its tracks. The second group, Important in this disease because if you remember, most people who get severely ill, it's an initial infection and then they seem to deteriorate at about a week, are anti-inflammatory drugs. And the third one, uh, which is we're examining in the UK and elsewhere, how we can get these into trials, are antibodies against the virus. Let's go through those in turn. <clears throat> Antivirals are especially effective in early disease and they may be effective in prophylaxis. And Virus has a complicated life cycle, and these drugs can act anywhere along that pathway. Now, antiviral drugs are less well-developed than antibiotics for bacteria, but we do have many highly effective antivirals, particularly, for example, for HIV, 
where they suppress the disease, they don't completely cure it, or hepatitis C, where they cure it uh, completely in most cases. Both of these are chronic diseases. And we have some moderately good antivirals for things like influenza, uh, herpes simplex virus, uh, and uh, for that matter, for Ebola more recently, and Lassa. So there certainly are diseases which we've got effective or moderately effective antivirals. So the idea of an antiviral is a perfectly, uh, perfectly plausible one. What we're doing at the moment is trialing several existing antivirals or other drugs that appear to have activity against this virus when you look at them in the laboratory. Uh, my expectation is that at best, uh, these will have a moderate effect and we'll probably have to wait until we've got a highly effective antiviral design for this virus before we have a, an effect so large that we feel that we actually can manage this uh, epidemic with drugs alone. The second group of drugs are immune modulating drugs. Now, the immune system is extremely complicated. It's got large numbers of feedback loops, uh, and uh, very often when you use a drug, it can have an impact uh, that you weren't expecting. But we already have many powerful drugs that can suppress different bits of the immune system. And they come from various uh, areas, the, most, the longest standing, the most widely known, widely used are steroids, um, which suppress quite large bits of the immune system. But there are also drugs, for example, from rheumatology, from people like, from things like rheumatic, uh, rheumatic diseases, uh, and in other inflammatory diseases, such as the interleukin-6 antagonist group. Uh, and there are also drugs which uh, suppress the immune system from transplantation, for example. So there's a lot of potential drugs which can uh, interfere with or suppress different bits of the immune system. And if this is mainly an immune disease that leads to people getting very sick and dying, it may be that one or some combination of these drugs may actually prevent progression of the disease and therefore mean people get disease, get moderately severe disease, but don't go on to the critical or uh, the path uh, that leads to some people uh, dying or having very prolonged illness. I have to say, though, that it is important to remember that anti-inflammatory drugs have been tried in many infections, Sometimes they help. For example, steroids are useful in some forms of tuberculosis. Many occasions they make no difference. And in a few occasions, they've actually made things worse. So I think we need to be aware that uh, this has a mixed record and we need to trial these very carefully. It is, however, likely that the severe disease is due to some kind of immune, uh, immunological reaction. And people think it's at this point in time, early in this disease, we may well change our view, uh, we think it may well be something called a cytokine storm, where what we get is the white cells, the immune cells of the body, are, are highly activated. They push out some uh, chemicals, interleukins, uh, interferon, um, and these uh, lead to more cells being activated and you get a really bad inflammatory response, particularly in the lungs. And we have quite a large number of drugs uh, which interfere with bits of this system, this cascade that can occur. Uh, and it may be that if we try these drugs, we will find that they lead to a better outcome in people who are beginning to move from uh, moderate disease uh, into more severe disease. So these drugs uh, already exist. And finally, on treatment, um, uh, it's, this is an old concept, conceptually very simple. You take the blood of someone who has had severe disease uh, and then, uh, or even mild disease, and they've recovered, 
and you assume that they've got in that blood uh, antibodies which are effective at least in the short term in fighting the disease. Uh, you remove the, anti the plasma which has got the antibodies in it and then you inject that into someone who's ill and you hope that those antibodies uh, will fight the disease and will lead to the disease not progressing. And there's recently been uh, progress on looking at this in the UK as elsewhere. And if this works, we could potentially find out what the antibodies are and manufacture them artificially. Finally on drugs, um, the idea of drugs for prevention, for prophylaxis. Because we know who the people are who are the most at risk because of their uh, existing um, conditions, because they're older, uh, for example, we might be able to give some people drugs that actually prevent this in the same way that we give people statins to reduce their risk of heart disease, or we give people who are going into an area with malaria, who are non-immune, uh, anti-malarials as prophylactis. Or in theory, if we had a, these could be given lifelong, or you could, for example, give them for a short period of time if someone was doing a particularly high-risk encounter, if, for example, a very frail older person was meeting their grandchildren, you might want to cover it for a short period of time. The variety of ways you could consider prophylaxis. It needs to be a drug with low side effects, ideally long-lasting, and would certainly be an antiviral. But prophylaxis is the third way in, in, uh, in addition to antivirals for treatment and the anti-inflammatory drugs uh, that drugs might help. So vaccines and drugs... Those, are some, those in broad terms are the ways these potentially could work. Whatever we do, however, we need to do trials. And the reason for this, I think, is illustrated well with this. There was a lot of talk early on about a drug called chloroquine, still an important drug for us to be studying at the moment. Um, but there's a slight tendency when, start, when people have nothing uh, to treat to think, well, let's just treat uh, with high doses of drugs that look plausible. Uh, here is the first trial that's come out looking at high-dose chloroquine and low-dose chloroquine in this, in, this uh, infection. And what it suggested was that people who were given the high-dose chloroquine, the treatment that was supposed to help them, actually uh, died at a higher rate than those who were given the low-dose chloroquine. Really critical. If we're going to try new drugs in people, we must do so as proper trials so that we learn and then for the future we can improve on this. And I'm enormously proud of the fact that we've got really good trials going on in the UK and very much thank the people who volunteer to be part of them because that really is how we will lend, end up uh, improving our knowledge and be able to treat this much more effectively. Finally, just some comments about this infection around the world. How different is this going to be in different countries? And I think the answer is very different, but we don't know how. For most infections, poverty and particularly malnutrition are associated with a, a poor outcome. So it may be that as this starts to spread around the world, we'll see a pattern where the mortality rate is higher in places where there is significant poverty. These also tend to be areas where there are much weaker health systems, which could more easily be overwhelmed if there was a big uh, spike of infections uh, and uh, may not have the capacity for critical care that there is in most industrialized countries. On the other hand, many middle and indeed lower income countries often have better public health systems than you would expect and often very good ones, uh, and they may be able to mount a significant public health response. We don't know 
where the climate has a significant impact on this disease. We know countries where it has transmitted. There's a lot, for example, we don't know about transmission in, for example, much of Africa. Um, there does appear to be a genetic element potentially in severity. We're still trying to tease that apart in the UK, in the US and other countries. Uh, this might have an important impact in terms of people's likelihood of getting the infection or likelihood of dying from it. But finally, and importantly, the demographic structure of different uh, countries is very different, and this may have a significant impact. I'm just going to illustrate this, first of all, with the UK facing three pandemics. On the left, uh, this is the best population pyramid I've managed to find from near the time, uh, around the 1918 flu pandemic, the population pyramid of the UK, elderly people right in the top bar here, uh, very small numbers of elderly people. So although this flu pandemic killed older people, there was a much, much smaller proportion of the population who were older than there was in the 1957 flu pandemic in the middle here. And now on the right, a much higher proportion again. So when facing these three pandemics, which have a propensity to kill older people, the proportion of the population potentially affected has steadily gone up in this country uh, and most other countries, for example, in Europe. Different countries, neighboring countries, have very different proportions of their population in the older age group who are much the most at risk of this infection. On the left uh, is China and on the right is Japan. If the same proportion of the population at all ages got infected, the translation into severe disease and the translation into death, deaths would be different between these two countries. And if, if you compare the population structure, for example, Western Europe, Southern Asia and West Africa, again, the proportion of people who are older in these is very different. So if it appears that in all around the world, those at highest risk are people over the age of 70, particularly over the age of 80, they may have very different impacts uh, on the different countries because of these different population structures. But there may be other things that are more important and outweigh that. Finally, before I round out, just to highlight some of the many things we do not know about this virus. We do not know the proportion of the population that is infected asymptomatically without symptoms, although we think at the moment it is actually quite low in terms of the overall population, uh, that's a really critical uh, piece of information. We do not know how long immunity to this infection lasts, and if it doesn't last very long, uh, that has important implications for the epidemic, and it also potentially has implications for are we likely to get a vaccine, because there are many diseases for which we've never managed to get an effective vaccine. We don't know where the blood test currently correlates with immunity. Importantly, we don't know how much children contribute to transmitting the virus. And this is very important, for example, in deciding on whether school closures uh, are a critical part of our long-term response. We don't know whether this is affected by seasons. Is this going to get worse again in winter just because of the fact that many respiratory viruses do? We don't understand why people deteriorate after a week, and we don't understand why men are significantly more likely to die than women. These are important for understanding how we can then find countermeasures. And that's in addition to our need to develop vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics. 
But there is an absolutely massive international scientific effort now to try and find countermeasures to this uh, in the UK, funded by, among others, the National Institute for Health Research, Medical Research Council, and the Wellcome Trust. But around the world, a huge amount of science uh, that means that in six months, in a year, we'll be much further forward than we are, uh, but we cannot guarantee when we're going to find the drugs, the vaccines, uh, that actually allow us a path out of this infection, uh, which mean that we can actually release some of the more, uh, un, un, uh, more uh, problematic social measures. So just to summarise, this talk has covered the epidemiology, including the mortality, the roots of transmission and the fact that a respiratory infection is much the most difficult to control uh, and the force of transmission of this infection. We've talked about the epidemiological countermeasures, which include uh, the um, uh, social distancing, but also the need to isolate cases and the old-fashioned things, uh, coughing and sneezing, uh, etiquette, and above all, washing hands. I've talked for a brief period about the clinical picture, our understanding there is evolving quite quickly, and then about the different ways in which we can use medical countermeasures, including vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics. And finally, uh, we've covered a short uh, section uh, on the what is likely, what may be likely to happen in the global picture. If you want to know more about some of the details of these three other talks I've given at Gresham, I think might be uh, useful background. One on the broad principles of controlling an epidemic and pandemic. Uh, one on eradication of diseases and why it is so difficult. Why have we only actually managed to eradicate to date one disease? Uh, smallpox, and one on the interaction between age and infection, uh, which is quite complex. And they will give more details if you're interested in those areas. But uh, this is a disease where we're in the foothills of our understanding. Uh, and undoubtedly, I or someone else will need in a year or two to come back and talk much more in a much more knowledgeable way about this virus, for which we are really still only beginning to understand how we're going to combat it. Thank you very much.